first of all, uh, is, is it correct to say that you initially became known on the internet as kind of Lane Norton's right-hand man? Uh, well, I think probably that's where most people are familiar with me, but I actually started out prior to that on the bodybuilding.com message boards. So this was a uh, period probably around 2006, 2007, bodybuilding.com had a contest prep section. Um, and the, for those that aren't familiar with it, it was it was loaded with threads. And a thread was basically anyone could log in, create an account on BodySpace, and then start documenting what they were going to do, talk about things. Very few people actually documented their contest preps. But when I first got interested in competing, I found a bunch of people that would actually document their preps for months at a time. And what's cool is it would keep a, a, a like a day-by-day -day history of their posts. So you could go back like six months, a year, two years, and you could see people's journeys. And um, that was my first time seeing like natural bodybuilding from beginning to end. And it got me really excited about doing it. And that's when I reached out to Lane Norton. So at that time, I didn't know him. I just worked with him as a coach. So I started really early on um, posting my journey, right? So I was a guy who worked in IT. I went to the gym every day. I decided I wanted to compete. What did that look like? And, and because I liked watching other people's journeys, I thought, you know what, I'll do the same thing and maybe someone will be interested and it will help somebody else out in the future. And so that's where I kind of got my start. Right. So uh, you have worked with Lane Norton on a coaching client kind of basis. Uh, and how, how long was that that sort of relationship of yours with him? Oh, it's still going. But I think uh, I hired him in 2007. Um, I decided I was going to do my first bodybuilding competition in 2008. So I reached out to him in 2007 and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And uh, he replied right away and said, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do this. We actually worked together for a uh, like an off season, like um, you know, building phase, which went great. And then we started contest prep in early 2008, and I competed in uh, the summer of 2008. And it, uh, so that was the beginning of our coaching uh, relationship. Brilliant. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I heard a story a couple of years ago that was something like. So you were a client of his and then kind of the way you actually became like personal friends was that your your wife kind of hit it off and on a personal basis with Lane's wife and then you went out for dinner together or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's very accurate. So what happened was um, uh, after I competed, um, you know, we stayed in touch and I decided I was going to do another show the following year. But um, we flew to the Arnold, Ohio. I had never been to the Arnold Classic. Uh, Lane was going to be there along with a lot of the other people from the brand Cyvation at the time, which was owned by Mark Loebliner, uh, Derek Charlebaugh, uh, Rob Moran. There was just a lot of people um, that I posted on the message boards with that were going to be there. So I was really excited to meet them. So I thought it'd be cool to go to the Arnold. Right about that time, my wife and I had just started dating. And I said, you know, I'm going to go to this thing called the Arnold Classic. It's a big fitness convention and she thought that would be a good idea to go to and I was kind of you know taken back because most of the women um, in my life up to that point were not interested in fitness and it was kind of something I did on my own and so the fact that um, she wanted to go was kind of exciting for me obviously we're married now and uh, have a family so it was a, it was a good sign but yeah so we got to the Arnold I booked it for the Salvation booth um, you know, I stood in line for a minute, got to talk to Lane, got to talk to Mark, got to talk to Rob and, uh, Isabel was there, Lane's wife. And so 
by the time we got done talking, me and Lane probably talked for half an hour or so. Um, you know, Misty's like, oh, we're going to go out to, we're going to go to the gym with them tonight. And we're going to go to dinner. And I didn't even know that she had made that plan. So Isabel had invited us to dinner and uh, yeah, the rest is history. We've been, we've been close ever since. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I, I just remember hearing this story like two or like one or two years ago. And I remember the first place my mind went when I heard this story was Jesus Christ. Like if I was in this situation, I, I would have been so freaking awkward. Like, I don't know. How was that experience for you? Like, was it was it easy or like were you good friends with Lane before then or? Yeah. I'd only I'd only ever talked to Lane before that on the phone, and we were definitely not friends. Um, you know, he was someone I admired, and I was definitely nervous to meet him. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, having a little anxiety about actually getting up there talking to him, and um, you know, but once once you meet Lane, you realize you know he's just a normal guy. It's just I think like you said before we spoke, it's it's kind of weird how easy it is to reach out to people. Um, nowadays, I mean, back then it was a little more difficult, but, you know, standing there looking at him while he was talking to people, I just remember, you know, I was very anxious and very excited. And then, um, you know, lo and behold, he's just a regular dude who's list, you know, who studies a lot and is just interested in the same things. We had a lot of common interests right away. And, um, I think that's probably why the friendship picked up the way it did. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think a lot of people who are listening to this uh, episode right now are fitness enthusiasts, you know, students of the game who maybe at some point will want to uh, do what you did and kind of become uh, from, you know, a fanboy and just listening to other people speaking, maybe become a content producer themselves or a coach or a professional in the field to some capacity. So now you are a successful coach, your partners with people like Lane with people like Doug Miller, you know, uh, legends in the field. I would be curious, um, what were some of the kind of internal transformations you had to go through yourself to to be where you are, besides, you know, being educated, besides, you know, developing a good physique yourself, but really from a mindset kind of perspective, if this question makes any sense. I think the hardest part for me, I mean, all of that stuff is important. The most important part is just having a passion for it because I never had to force myself to like read, you know, I've been reading magazines and books since I was a teenager on muscle building and and stuff like that. So that was, that was always the easy part. The hard part for me was this huge transition that there's been in online work because I was a, you know, I grew up where my dad went to work every day. I started working at 15 years old every day, you know, in, in the summers when I wasn't going to school, I always had a job. And so the hardest part for me has been getting out of my own way and understanding that um, I could actually be my own business. I could actually be my own brand that I, you know, I don't know that people are going to have that much trouble doing it. Maybe they will, but it just seems like now it's more accepted. Like my job did not exist when I was in college. You know, most people go to college to get an education and, uh, you know, build build their skill set for their career. My career did not exist. If you studied exercise when I was in college, you wanted to be a physical education teacher for like a high school or something, right? Like that was the extent of it. Um, uh, now people are going to school studying exercise science, physiology, nutrition, dietetics to become what I am now. So it's... Uh, for me, the hardest part was just understanding that, um, you know, having the confidence in building a business around myself, um, something that I think Lane 
was probably one of the first people to do. You know, that's that's where Lane Lane didn't invent flexible dieting. Lane didn't invent contest prep. Lane didn't invent powerlifting. But what he did was he put himself out there and um, really, you know, was an early adopter of many of the social media platforms, which took me years to get on. Um, but it's it's been that's been the biggest mental shift is changing my focus from, um, you know, working for someone to being my own kind of leader. Right, right. Um, and kind of to to get a little bit ahead of myself, I wanted to ask you ask this later of you, but how do you see kind of the the state of this in industry now? So, like you said, it took years for you to get on these social media platforms, and that is certainly not the case with people now trying to get into this whole space. So, how do you see kind of the the attitude of people trying to get into this industry? And like, um, how do you see kind of where this whole space is headed? Do you see it as a positive or how do you see this mass of people just trying to flood the industry all of a sudden? Well, I think it's very positive, right? Because with any type of shift, you're going to have people that are like mad that, you know, someone does their first competition and now they're offering diet plans. And while that may seem like a bad thing, what those people are soon going to find out is they don't have people knocking on their door to work with them because what we have now is more information than ever. So with that, we have more width, right? But the people that are going to be successful are going to have the most depth, right? They're going to have the most well-rounded, well-experienced ability to um, provide information, education, uh, get results, right? So um, I think just like with bodybuilding, you're going to have to have a passion for it, right? Like you're going to have to truly want to, to work around the clock, um, working with clients, speaking to them, emailing them, developing programming, uh, ed educating yourself better, uh, constantly building up yourself and your brand. Because just like with any other business, the service we're offering is all very similar, right? At a certain point, we're all going to have a very similar skill set. What separates people is your ability to convey that information, the customer service you provide, the service you provide, the skills you have. Um, and that's something that will never be replaceable. So just because there's more people doing it, that means there's more people interested in it. And at the end of the day, the, the cream will always rise to the crop. The good coaches, uh, especially with as fast as information spreads now, are always going to be busy. And if you are a bad coach and you provide bad coaching, all it takes is someone to put a hashtag, you know, uh, this team sucks and people are going to start to find that stuff. And so, I think, yeah. um, you know, I, there's a lot of negatives associated with all the people that want to be an online coach, but I see it as positives. Um, there's going to be products that are out for people that want to be online coaches. There's going to be avenues. Like, like I said, this career did not exist 10 years ago. And had someone told me 10 years ago, hey, you could be, this could be your job. I would have thought, well, that's a great job, but how do I get there? There was no path, right? And with Lane getting his PhD and, um, you know, all the all the programs now, USF, the University of South Florida here in Tampa, where I go to school, they have a class called physique enhancement. Didn't exist, right? Though Dr. Bill Campbell, who runs USF, is very interested in physique enhancement. So it's exercise science, but we're also starting to see the direction shift a little bit. And so there are some options. Right, right. So with that, you know, you mentioned skills and, and knowledge and, and being educated. 
And and I think as um, as kind of commonplace it is to say that you know if you want to get into this space you have to be educated you have to know your stuff. From your perspective, for someone who wants wants to be a coach or a professional in this field, what are the most important things that people can do to sort of hone their craft? Right. If if this question makes sense, uh, my number one thing would be to work with a good coach. So a lot of people will balk at the idea of, oh, I have to pay $1,000 to work with this coach for my contest prep or whatever the price may be. But that's short-sighted thinking. You're thinking of a $1,000 transaction or whatever the transaction may be. You're thinking, I will no longer have that money. What am I getting out of it? What I didn't realize when I hired Lane, I said, here's my money, Lane. I want to work with you, was that I was basically getting a PhD in how to do contest prep. I was learning from, at the time, the best in the industry at getting people ready for competition. Every week, he would send me things. I would ask him questions. I would learn. I would learn things about nutrition, about training. It further um, made me curious about how to do other things. Like I would, I would actually do more research because I would hear things you know, that came from Lane. And so I, it got me interested in more topics. So I think the most important thing is to align yourself with someone that you feel is going to be able to help you in the process because you will learn how to do things, how not to do things, what you liked and what you didn't like so that if you do become a coach in the future or if that is your goal, you're actually taking a course in how to do that, how to run your business, how to run your social media, how to pay attention to how things are done. Um, and those are all lessons that I took with me when I actually started coaching. I actually tried to hold myself to a standard higher than Lane's because Lane had a name and I had no name. I couldn't I couldn't provide a service equal to his. In my mind, I had to be better than Lane. Um, so it's the same thing with, you know, if, if I was wanting to be a coach right now and I had no experience, uh, I would definitely get into competing or some type of competition and I would hire the best coach possible for that process and learn from that. Right. And, and uh, I'm actually uh, really glad that you brought this up because I, I, I actually wanted to ask you this question that um, you, you yourself who have kind of gone from being a client to now being a coach, um, it's kind of a weird question, but from your perspective, what does it take to be a good client? Like I, I have myself been coached by some of the best people in the industry and it's been an invaluable experience. I learned so much, but it's kind of been a learning curve in terms of how to actually be a good client and not just some, some asshole who, you know, floods their inboxes with emails all the time. So what would you say to people about this? Yeah, a good client, uh, I get this asked all the time. And, and um, I remember early on, you know, when I first started doing this, online coaching was still not a common thing. So a lot of people would be like, how are you going to coach me online? How does this work? I don't get those questions anymore. So what I learned early on was there are no bad clients, right? So a bad client, most coaches would be like, oh, this person emails me all the time. What I've come to learn is that a lot of this process is psychological based, right? So you have to learn how to deal with people psychologically. You also have to learn how to write programming and write plans for people that cover the topics. So if I would get the same question over and over, that would now become a part of my plan, right? Because I want to be able to help people understand where I'm coming from better. So I didn't look at questions or emails or, you know, a person that was kind of uh, nonstop with the questions as a bad client, I looked at it as I was not a good enough coach yet to get my point across. 
this is where social media has been a huge help for me, my YouTube videos. I started my YouTube videos at the consistency they're at now because my clients were asking me the same questions over and over. And if they were asking me the same question, I figured a lot of people had this question, not just my clients, maybe thousands of people wanted to know the same answers. So I was not only providing value to my client because I was answering a question directly to them, I was now, I had some form of media to go back to. So for example, a client asked me yesterday, what are your thoughts on uh, why the scale fluctuates so much? So I made a video yesterday on why the scale fluctuates so much. Now, in six months from now, when a client says, hey, coach, the scale is always doing this, I just send them a link to this video, right? So we're getting kind of that correspondence down where they're getting personal attention from me um, and, and it makes me a better coach. So what makes a good client is someone that is genuinely able to uh, ask questions, get their point across without um, you know, not getting too paralyzed by analyze, analyzing the information. There is, a, there is a point where you can get too overwhelmed um, and not understand that minor things don't matter. Like they might matter over time, this and that, but it's the big picture. Are you eating? Are you training? Are you sleeping? Are you, um, are you, applying, are you applying the best practices uh, that we're aware of? Those type of things. Um, don't get too bogged down in, hey, coach, I had four grams of fiber extra yesterday. Is that going to set me back? Or, you know, um, I have to take two days off of training because my parents are in town for my birthday. Like, you got to live your life. Um, and I think that's where we can get, there's so much information now, it can be a little bit difficult to kind of um, understand that minor things aren't going to have a major impact on us here and there. Um, so I try to just get people to understand there are no emergencies in bodybuilding, okay? There are emergencies in life. Parents get sick. Animals get sick. Uh, car accidents happen. Things happen in life. Those are emergencies. Um, hey, coach, I'm, I got to travel for work, and uh, we're getting a menu, and I don't get to pick my foods. So that's not an emergency, right? So I got I to gotta help people learn how to deal with that, and I, hope that, I think that makes them better um, equipped to handle this lifestyle for the long term, and that's really my ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, obviously, I, I kind of, kind of asked this question of you a couple of minutes ago already. But like, obviously, when just when talking about you know, like building self-efficacy as a client, a big part of being a good coach is is obviously competence, right? Like, you have to hone your craft, and like you've been in this this industry for a while now, and you know, dealing with different clients, dealing with different questions. What were some of the kind of the most important things that you you experienced and learned over the years and kind of the most important refinements that you made to your own coaching practice, if you can think of any? Yeah, I mean, I have some very, very easy ones to think of. As a matter of fact, the, the probably the most important thing that I learned over the years is that your word is the number one thing you have, right? So early on when I was coaching, um, you know, I didn't take things as seriously as I probably should have at times. I would tell people, yeah, I'll have this to you by this day. And, you know, a couple of days would go by and I didn't have it. And I didn't realize the impact that that had on people. Um, mm -hmm. I do my absolute best to always keep my word, do things in a timely manner and um, make sure that the client understands that I value them as much as they value themselves. That would be my biggest thing is... um you know, just 
making sure that you prioritize your clients and your coaching business because although you might have multiple clients, they only have one coach and that's you. And I have to look at them as they're my only client. And I try to think back to when I was working with, with Lane and what it meant to me when he replied to me quickly and what it meant to me when he didn't reply to me quickly, right? I remember those feelings. So I have to provide that. And so um, that's, that's a balancing act. It's figuring out just what you need to do to make sure that you're meeting your requirements as a coach. It's, it's a, I guess it's a very valuable, valuable experience that I do have this in my past that I, I remember what it's like to, you know, know that my program from my coach is going to arrive the following day. And basically it's not like, it's not like it doesn't matter if it's, it comes at 9 a.m. or only arrives at 2 p.m. or the next day. It's like the previous day when you're anticipating your program to arrive, that's like already too late in your mind because you're so excited. So knowing that it really helps you to become a better coach, right? Yeah, yeah. Under, uh, there's nothing as valuable, uh, if, if this is your goal to become a coach, as working with a coach and seeing how the process happens. Um, you know, I, I think success as a coach will come from ultimately you just wanting the best for your clients. You you want to provide the best results. You want to provide the best programming um, and the best support. And if you want that, you will find a way to make it happen. I guess my last question on this theme is, I heard you mention something on uh, Dynamic Duo Trainings podcast that you did not long ago, which was an awesome podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes. But you said that your number one advice to newcomer uh, online coaches would be to eat shit for five years. <laughs> so uh, would you would you care to elaborate that here? Yeah. So first of all, I got to say, I stole that from Gary Vaynerchuk. For those that aren't familiar with um, Gary, nice. he, he is uh, he's when I have time to watch some videos, I love to watch his just he out hustles just about anybody in the world. And um, although his advice comes across as kind of crass at times, when you get to the root of it, it's 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 rooted, it's built on fact. And, um, you know, just like anything else, I mean, if you want to have a great physique, you, you can't train for six months and then do a show and, and that's going to be your physique. You know, you, you have to put in years and years of work. And the luxury I had of my period of eating shit as a online coach was I had a career. I was doing something else. It was my hobby. Um, fortunately for me, my hobby, my, uh, my hobby was more, I was more passionate about than my career, but I loved my career. I was in it and I sat in front of a computer all day. i literally was on the computer, either working on my job or working on my client stuff. Right. So at the very early on, I was very responsive. And, and so I was fortunate. Now, if you have a job where you're a personal trainer or a bartender, or you, a service job where you're not on the computer all day, it's going to be a little more tough, more difficult transition. There might have to be a leap of faith. I was fortunate that while the first year my business made $350, um, didn't matter. That was $350 that I didn't make the year before. So I was able to make that natural progression the next year um, and make more money while still having my, my career. I never had to like quit my job to, to take that leap of faith and hope that, okay, I, I make more money this year. And I think that's, um, that's a luxury that I had, but there's other ways to get around that. Um, like Gary Vee says, don't be fancy. Like if you want to have a career as an online coach, 
Um, you're going to need to travel to shows. You're going to need to meet clients. You're going to need to be in the scene, be at fitness expos, be at events. That means you're going to have to have money to travel, money to stay. That might mean if you're going to go to the Arnold, you try to bunk up with 10 people so that your trip is cheaper, right? That might mean you have to drive 12 hours because you don't afford, you can't afford the flights. That might mean you need to live at home longer with your parents or you need to roommate with four people, keep your bills down. Um, you know, that might mean you need to find a job that you can do part-time that, that allows you to do things that you want to do, right? So uh, whatever that means for the individual in question, it just means don't get ahead of yourself, right? The first time a client pays you $1,000, don't go out and get a new car. Don't go buy a fancy watch. Don't go buy new clothes. Put that $1,000 in the bank, reinvest it in yourself, buy a flight to the Olympia, walk around, shake hands, meet people. Uh, if you have a client doing a show, fly out to that show. Nothing is going to help your business or brand scale faster than doing things one-on-one -on -one and personal attention because those people are never going to forget that. And um, these are lessons that I've learned. You know, the, 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 the bigger my business has gotten, the more I've traveled. Last year, I went to two national shows. This year, I'm doing three national shows. I'm doing the Arnold. I'm doing the Olympia. Uh, I'm going to the Toronto Pro. This year will be my most uh, shows attended and expos attended. Whereas I could at this point go, oh, I'll just stay at home and work from home because I don't need to travel. I have enough clients, but my goal is to continue to progress as a coach, be more present, continue to build. And I think taking a step back early on in your career and understanding that those are the most important things, not how much money is in your bank, not what kind of car you drive, but that you are there for your clients. That's what I mean by, by eating shit. And it might not take five years, right? It might take a year or two, but just don't get ahead of yourself. Um, and build, build the business before you start to worry about things that are, are not going to help you. Yeah. And, uh, it's, I, I love how you like as, as much as it, you know, you started off this entire discussion with, with stating how important it is to have passion, but at the same time, you're not saying that, you know, if you want it badly enough, just jump into it, you will make it happen. You're more like, rationally passionate right so it's it's kind of a balancing act between reality and uh and dreaming so it's i i, I don't think you want to be desperate um because when you're desperate you do things that you normally wouldn't do so let's say you're a desperate coach you don't have enough clients you're not making enough money a girl comes to you she's doing uh you know an hour of cardio every day she's 30 pounds over stage weight and she's eating 800 calories and she says i want to do a show in 12 weeks <laughs> What's a desperate coach going to do? Probably the yeah. wrong thing. What am I going to do? Hell no, you cannot do a show this year, let alone in the next 12 weeks, right? So, and, and, and the response I get from that is way better. The, the client says, you know, I knew you were right. I, I know you're right. I just didn't want to tell myself it. Thank you. What do we got to do? Let's plan it out. Let's, let's reverse engineer this process. Whereas a coach in a bad situation might say, We can figure something out. We'll do four hours of cardio a day and we'll get you on 300 car, you know, whatever they're going to do to try to get this person. They're just going to put them in a worse position. They're not going to build their reputation um, because they're more concerned about the financial aspect of coaching, which can be substantial. But if that's your focus, again, your decisions are not going to be good. Um, and there's one thing that's always true in business. The right thing is the right thing. And if you're not doing the right thing, Um, you're not doing yourself favors for the long term. 
Yeah, it, it actually kind of reminds me of, I just tried out Avatar Nutrition the other day, and I was just so impressed by this thing that is supposed to be normal, but it's not, that, you know, like, it's $10 a month, but you, you like, you don't have to sign up for an, an, an entire year. Like, you can try it for a month. If you don't like it, you can quit. And that's what you do when you have a stable ground. Like, Lane and, you know, the people operating Avatar Nutrition, they're not desperate. They don't have to make people sign up for an entire year. So, yeah, that, there's, that's, there's one thing to do, and that's the right thing. And I love that you... Uh, said that you know you had the luxury of having a stable ground and a career that you already loved because it's just like in natural bodybuilding that usually the people who do the best are those who have other things to do besides just bodybuilding they don't have only one goal and that is to build as much muscle as possible they have other hobbies that they're engaged in and they're kind of distracted from time to time uh, would you would you agree with that yeah i think uh you know, being around natural bodybuilding, the, the, the people that I've seen that are the most successful um, are actually more successful in other areas of their life. You just don't know about it. Um, a lot of people don't know that Brian Whitaker has a PhD. Um, a lot of people don't, don't know that Doug Miller was the valedictorian of Penn State University. A lot of people don't know that these people are overachievers in life, not just on the bodybuilding stage. They, they set goals and achieve them no matter what they're going to do. It just so happens that they have uh, the physiology to have great physiques and they put in the work for, for years. So, yeah, people see a natural bodybuilder on stage and they think that's great. But um, those those natural bodybuilding kind of has a type of person that I've noticed that gets involved in the sport. And it's generally people that are overachievers in life. And that's just an extension of that. So, yeah, when you see when you see great natural bodybuilders. Um, you can bet that there's other things going on in their life that they're very successful with. Yeah, and actually, natural bodybuilders, almost all of them are really freaking smart. And and even like that, that's what's cool about natural bodybuilding is that you know when you look at an IFBB pro, many times you can kind of tell that they're lifting really heavy just by looking at their heads. But you know when, like for example, Martin McDonald, who is a really smart guy, and I I didn't know personally that he was a really jacked individual, and I just looked at like I just saw his upper body on one of his pictures and I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> like, what did I just see? So yeah, that's kind of funny. But, um, you know, one thing that I, I want to ask you is that, you know, you're, you're, you're like close to your forties or you're 40, something like that, right? I'm 41. Yeah. 41. Perfect. So, you know, you, you look, you look pretty freaking amazing. And from my perspective, you're, you're a, a great example of someone who has been building his body for a long time intelligently, and now he's at a great position. So you have a, a good outlook on this, I presume. So I want to ask you, from, my pers from your perspective, what are some of the key things that someone has to get right with their training and nutrition to really make efficient progress in the long term or to twist it in another way? What are some of the most critical kind of mistakes to avoid training or nutrition wise to kind of avoid spinning your wheels for years yeah so i'll give you i'll go we'll, we'll do nutrition first so what are the things to avoid um nutritionally speaking to prevent you from making progress the biggest thing i would say is fad diets 
don't don't jump on a diet because you see everyone doing it. Don't say, oh, well, everyone's going Atkins, everyone's going low carb, everyone's going low fat, whatever it is. I think the, the, the biggest lesson I learned from working with Lane was just how simple nutrition is. It's just so easy, okay? It's just about consistently getting enough protein to hit your goals, um, you know, using carbohydrates wisely, paying attention to what your personal metabolic rate is. Don't get caught up in seeing Alberto Nunez eat 600 grams of carbs a day. Uh, <laughs> likewise, don't get caught up because you see a uh, bikini pro doing three hours of cardio a day or, you know, eating 30 grams of carbs a day. Don't get caught up in that. We are all, uh, we are all individual data points. We are all unique and different. There is no shame in uh, the way our bodies operate. So we just need to get comfortable with way our, our you know, I, I used to jump on, uh, you know, I'd try 400 grams of carbs a day, or I would try 400 grams of protein a day, or, you know, whatever uh, magazine came out that month with the, uh, the, the, the perfect diet for muscle building, I would jump on that. And so, yeah, I would, you know, I, I did well, but I just never saw consistent results. I would get frustrated. I would take time off the gym because, you know, with the diet, I would, I would think the diet was the issue. The diet is, in my opinion, nutrition is the easy part because at the end of the day, as long as you're just getting consistently hitting your goals, uh, understanding what those should be, we won't go into depth, but yeah, just don't, don't switch all the time. I mean, try to find what works for you and just stick with that for years. The biggest variable is training. Um, so we'll talk about pitfalls with training. The biggest pitfall with training is getting stuck in a rut, in my opinion. So Early on when I was training, maybe, you know, 20 years ago, all the magazines said you had to hit a body part once a week. And if you did anything over than that, you risked overtraining. And um, it was just, it, it was a very scary word. Overtraining was just, the reason you're not progressing is because you're overtraining. And so, uh, you know, to the point where people took a year off, you know, just kidding. But yeah, I think um, getting stuck with a program and understanding that the only way you're going to progress is if you're lifting more, doing more volume finding ways to improve your workouts and uh, being consistent. So the biggest mistake I made early on was I would have a great six months and then I would get frustrated and I would take a month or two off and then I would start over again, right? And then yeah. in that month or two off, if I had just taken a week off or tapered uh, and come back, I would have seen some amazing progress, but I would just run myself into the ground um, and then take a few week months off and come back. And then I would make great progress when I came back, right? Because muscle memory and I would just have the passion back so the biggest pitfall for training would definitely be um, always trying to progress, uh, you know, but also consistency, being consistent. Even when you don't feel great, um, you know, taking a little time off here and there is fine, but finding ways that you can taper, deload, but kind of progress without quitting because consistency, uh, you know, at 41 years old, I've made more progress in the last 10 years than I did in the first 15 because I've been more consistent. Um, whereas the first 15, I probably had the hormonal, uh, ability to make better progress, but, uh, you know, I didn't understand all the things that I do now. So those would be my two thoughts on that. Right. Um, do you see, cause that's something that I, I've been addressing a lot on my channel lately, but, um, do you see a lot of perpetual dieting and cutting with, with clients that you work with who just kind of end up being stuck in this endless dieting cycle where they try to get lean obsessively finally they get there then they blow up their progress very quickly with some overeating periods and then they diet again is this something you see frequently yeah absolutely and it's actually probably something you know i used to do because 
we see the pictures in the magazines, especially now with social media on Instagram, you see people posting pictures from six months ago and not realizing that they, they peaked for their show. They had four photo shoots and they show those pictures year round, but they're now 20 pounds over that weight and they're back in the gym putting on muscle. And so for years, you know, you, you would spin your wheels. And I think especially now with competition, um, competitors want to compete year after year and they don't take necessarily the time between competing. And so I was very fortunate, um, when, you know, working with Lane, talking about when I want to get better for competition, he's like, you know, you need to take two, three years off, which kind of seems crazy when you're going to take a couple of years off of competing, but taking time off of competition doesn't mean you take time off of the process. So yes, uh, absolutely. I did a video called perpetual dieting, stop perpetual dieting, whatever it was called. Um, because I constantly get, you know, emails and updates and questionnaires from people that, you know, oh, I've been dieting for two years and I just want to lose that 10 more pounds. And then I'll, and I'll be like, you're not going to lose the 10 pounds or I'll have a client who's been reverse dieting for six weeks after being in prep for six months and they want to start dieting again. And it's a, it's a constant struggle. And I don't expect it to change anytime soon just because, you know, you, you see that, that physique that you want and it can be very difficult to delay that gratification. It can be very difficult to understand that the process takes uh, years and um, it can be very difficult to look in the mirror and see your physique not look the way you you envision it. But that's one good thing about being 41 is that I've learned how to accept and enjoy my physique at all stages. I've learned to accept that when I'm competing, I miss being heavier and stronger. And I, when, I'm, when I'm heavier and stronger, I miss vascularity and, and the, the pumps and the crazy looks you get in the gym, you know, so there's, there's, there's the grass is always greener, but once you've done both a couple times, I think, uh, it's, it's easier to accept. And that's something a good coach will help you with. Um, but ultimately that's part of being a good client. Remember what you asked me earlier, it comes down to understanding and educating and, you know, having faith in the process. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, uh, just, just as a kind of side comment on the whole perpetual cutting thing, I mean, like one big danger that I see in that, that I observed with myself is that because of these perpetual cutting cycles, um, basically the whole notion of bodybuilding and physique building in my mind became just associated with constant deprivation, just always less, eating less, take away food, whereas that's one com that's supposed to be only one component of it when you're competing but for the most part you're supposed to be well fed right yeah and i think uh my friend alberto has touched on this subject very well um you know i think he did an analysis of his own personal time that he spent in a deficit versus in a surplus right so basically if you're in a deficit you're not really progressing strength and muscle wise so um you know he he had some postulations that you should be spending like something like, I don't want to quote them, but I remember it was very heavily favored towards building 80, 90% of your life should be in the building phase, right? Because that's when we're getting better. You should be dieting down for your, your goal show weight or physique pictures or whatever it is that you want to do. But ultimately um, you should be spending the most of your time and the majority of your time in a building phase. So that's, uh, I think that's more important than people place on it. They place more importance on, oh, I'm going to be going to the beach this summer. Uh, I'm going to be at the expo this month. I need to do a quick cut for that. And they're constantly cutting their ability to improve short for these short-sighted goals.
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's uh, ju- just today. I was I was walking around, and now I'm not dieting. I'm well fed, and I was walking around. It was a beautiful day, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like this is how it feels to actually be well fed and just feel good. Like I forgot how this feels like. So it's pretty crazy. But <clears throat> another thing I wanted to ask you about is obviously flexible dieting now is kind of a pretty well accepted thing, but Lane has been one of the, the the big pioneers of the concept. He didn't start. It was more uh, Dr. Joe Klemzewski, but he was definitely one of the big pioneers. And you, you are also a big proponent of the concept. So now after, you know, several years of this concept having taken root, how do you see the kind of the state of flexible dieting, if this makes sense? And at this stage, what does it mean to you? So that's a really good question. My friend Lauren Conlon, who um, who just got her master's degree from University of South Florida, she did a study last year, um, did some research, and had people come in and do a fat loss diet based on either a rigid or a structured plan. They had to eat certain foods, you know, or a flexible approach. And these were general population people who were lifters and you know did train, but the basic idea was to do research and see which approach was better. And what we found, what what I found most interesting from Lauren was that Lauren was a lifetime flexible dieter. And so we were huge flexible dieter proponents, as in like meal plans are terrible. That's a terrible way to go. But what we found is that the most important aspect of any diet is education, right? So what people liked that were on the meal plan, and some people liked the meal plan better. Some people liked being told what to eat. Because they didn't have to think. They were just told what to do. And I think it gave Lauren, myself, and others um, in our circle an appreciation for understanding that although flexible dieting is the way to go, there is there is value in, in meal planning and structured. So Dr. Joe, the genius that he is, has actually uh, coined another term that uh, may, may catch on in the near future called structured flexibility. Mm-hmm. Basically, the idea is, is you know, with, with flexible dieting, it got bastardized to the point where people were just trying to do whatever they could to hit their macros and avoid any type of real food, right? So, you know, just whey protein and, and, and cake and McDonald's to hit their macros. But what we're seeing now, and especially me as a coach, although I'm a proponent of flexible dieting, I'm not a proponent of not planning your meals, of not using whole food sources, of not doing all that you can to make your diet as easy as possible to follow. Because if you're not putting yourself in the best position to succeed, when the going gets tough, you're going to fail. And a lot of that comes down to planning ahead, planning your meals. So even though I do flexible dieting, when I am in a strict phase, I'm meal prepping, I am meal planning. So my my meals are planned for the week, right? Um, What's cool about flexible dieting is it allows me to, if something comes up, kind of change gears if I need to, or in the off season, in the in the improvement season, as Doug Miller likes to say, we can now focus on targets, hitting our goals, being a little bit more loose, but still understanding because I'm educated on what macronutrients are on how to proceed and, and be successful. So I do think there's value in meal planning. I just think education is the key component there. So what, what, what's the future for flexible dieting is going to be this structured flexibility approach where we, where we understand what's in our food, understand how to track it using the technology available 
um, and just continuing to kind of hone that skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, um, like you said, meal plans are not bad per se. It's more like meal plan in combination with a lack of education or a lack of knowledge, right? That's where people run into problems because then they fail to kind of mistaken the the mechanism with the with the tool per se like if that makes sense yeah so um good coaches that provide meal plans will also explain why they're doing it what the macronutrients are what you know what some options are for things um bad coaches will provide a meal plan because it's the meal plan they got from their coach there is no consideration for metabolism age goals it's just the same plan that they're giving to everybody that's where I run into a problem. I don't have a problem with meal plans per se. Um, I'm more focused on the, the issue of are they actually coaching or are they just sharing bad information? All right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, great, Paul. Um, you dropped a lot of uh, cool knowledge bombs here, and I think we went over a lot of cool stuff. Just two quick questions to the end. One is that I like to ask a lot of guests is uh, have there been any kind of uh, habits Anything or any kind of resource, habits, or just tools that you utilize in your life or have utilized in your life in the last couple of years that helped you a lot, whether in training, whether in your business, daily life, anything like that that comes to mind? Tools that I utilize on a daily basis. Um, the, I mean, I don't know if it's considered a tool, but, you know, like social media, um, getting comfortable with using it. You know, I'm a, I love YouTube now. Uh, I really enjoy Instagram, um, learning how to use Facebook. You know, I have a bodybuilding show that I promote in the, in the fall. And so I'm learning how to use Facebook targeted marketing ads. So uh, the, the biggest tool I will say is learning how to use all the things at our disposal, um, for success. And, um, those tools include, you know, YouTube and Instagram, the cost of entry on those is $0. You know, like you literally have a phone in your hand, you can upload YouTube videos. I have a friend, uh, George Rosado, uh, fitness IQ, who has basically built a, a huge following and the dude doesn't even have a computer. Um, he got a computer recently because he's now working with clients, but he built his Instagram following through doing videos and editing everything on his phone. Um, he just saw that as not a problem. I would see that as a problem. I would not be able to get my whole thing done on my phone. Like I love working on the computer. So I think learning what tools you have available. Um, for me, it's, you know, things like, um, uh, clearly YouTube, the bodybuilding boards back in the day, uh, Instagram, whatever it is to get your message out there. Facebook's probably the best one right now. Um, and just putting in the work to understand how they work and how they can work for you. Awesome. That's, uh, yeah. Did you like, now you're, uh, I, I'm, I see that you're very productive on YouTube. Did you also like, I myself now it's getting easier for me looking into the camera, like with a straight face without making a whole bunch of silly faces. But did you, was there any kind of learning curve for you? To answer that question, all you have to do is go back to my videos from 2010, 2011. Yes, I was uh, very deadpan and drone on camera, and um, I didn't really put much personality into it. Even though I have like a big personality in person, yeah, I had that kind of disconnect with the camera. And uh, I, I clearly remember watching some of Mark Lobliner's videos and thinking, man, 
he comes to life on camera and, and he's very much like that in person. The disconnect with me was I was very boisterous in person, but when the camera came on, I kind of like, you know, kind of clammed up a little bit. So I've learned to just let my personality be a little bit more free. And that's definitely something that comes with, you know, watching yourself and being consistent with uploading. Um, any kind of resource, uh, whether it's a book, video, podcast, anything like that, that was very influential to you or caused you a nice aha moment over recent years? The biggest one would be Gary Vaynerchuk, watching his stuff, understanding I was uh, I was always in my own way. I avoided social media because I felt like who wants to see me? Who wants to do this? I didn't understand the tools for what they they were for. So uh, you know, I can tell you all kinds of like textbooks and things that I've read, but I think that's kind of well documented. I think what's not well documented right now is the way that information is conveyed and how important it is to um, not get hung up on preconceived notions. And I think Gary's. Uh, videos helped me do that. It helped me understand the positives of social media, not the negatives. It gets a lot of negativity, but there's so many positives. Brilliant. Awesome, Paul. Thank you so much for all these cool answers. <clears throat> and uh, would you please let people know where they can find you and just anything that you'd like to get their attention to? Yeah, very easy. Uh, if you want to look me up, I'm very easy to find because my last name is uh, Ravella, R-E-V-E-L-I-A. So on uh, YouTube, I'm at Paul Ravella on um, Instagram, at Paul Ravella. I have a, uh, a team page for my clients where I post like uh, some stuff called at Team Pro Physique on Instagram. Prophysique.com is my website. And, you know, I have some I have some basic apparel stuff, hats and shirts and stuff, but mostly it's just about my coaching and uh, content. And, you know, I have some projects I'm working on right now. I'll, I'll give you guys an inside scoop. I have a website called mealflexibility.com which is basically a tool I'm, I'm creating for people that are transitioning from a meal plan to flexible dieting because there's this big disconnect. It can be kind of scary and overwhelming to, to uh, try to fit anything you want into your macros. So this website I'm developing allows you to plug in your macros, the time of day you eat, the time of day you train, um, how many meals you want to eat. And it'll give you some basic ideas for meals you can have. You can adjust them um, and it'll give you your macro breakdowns per meal. So it's a it's a project I'm uh, I'm very very excited about. So mealflexibility.com, but mostly just Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. I mean, if you want to find me, Google my name. All the stuff comes up. I'm, I'm I'm easy to find. All right, guys, Abel here again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe on YouTube if you watched it there. I come out with new content every week there, whether it's in the form of a podcast episode like this, which I actually aim to do one off every week, or some shorter informational video. Also, if you could just leave a comment and suggest some people that you'd like me to interview or just topics you'd like me to cover, uh, it would be very helpful to know how I can better serve you. And if you listen to it in podcast, format if you could leave a rating on itunes it would greatly help out the show and i would be more than grateful for it so thanks guys for hanging out up until now thanks for being here and see you all next week